Welcome to Make That Paper, the show where we talk about all the crazy jobs we do to make the cash we need to support our artistic dreams. And to cover the cost of a sublet in L.A. during the rainy season. Oh, my God. That makes sense. Uh, on this episode, let's learn about the waiting tables trade and the box office biz. And let's not forget the improv coaching calling. We are your hosts, Jamie Parker Stickle. And Jason Bieber. And today we are talking to a nine-time, listen to that, nine-time Moth Story Slam winner in New York, Los Angeles, and Phoenix, and the winner of the 2019 New York Moth Grand Slam Championship. For over 20 years, he was a writer, performer, and teacher for Chicago's legendary comedy theater, The Second City. He's a great guy and just an immense talent, and we are so lucky and excited to have him joining us today. So wherever you are listening to this podcast, please abruptly stop what you're doing and just give a big, out loud round of applause for our guest, Kevin McGeehan! Yeah! Oh, I could hear it. Yeah. Uh, Hi. This is exciting. And I wish we were on a stage in a big theater where he could just, like, start us off with one of his moth stories. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Oh, yeah. Just, Just... Just turn it over to uh, ten minutes of of of, uh, of storytelling. So I have to I have to tell Kevin something really quick. Yeah, exactly. I have okay. to tell Kevin something uh, no. really, really quick um, because he doesn't know because this is the first time Kevin and I have actually met. But I have used him as an example in my storytelling and performance classes for the past two years. Um, I've used one of your performances um, as an example of performance. So. P.S. I did that, and you didn't even know it. Wow. Wouldn't it be awful if I had a problem with that? No, because it's uh, on YouTube. I got your views, babe. You got, I got your right. views. That would be uh, so awkward. That would be so awkward if I was like weirded out by it. I know. Uh, uh, you can be weirded out by it. It's totally fine. I'm not at all. Uh, which performance, if you don't mind me asking, because I can't help but ask that question. Um, it is the one where you talk about hugging your friends. and I'm uh, okay. To, it's called I'm the overhugger. Yeah. yeah, the overhugger. Um, I just think <laughs> that one thing that's important that, um, especially writers who uh, do um, re- readings of their novels, I get a lot of writers. One thing that they forget to do is, you know, engage that audience. They think all of a sudden they're an actor and there's a fourth wall and they're not supposed to break it. And I'm like, you should be breaking the wall. Why aren't you breaking this wall? Yeah. Um you know, and I think that's something that you do so well is engage with the audience, which is so important. Yeah. Thank you. In all honesty, one of the main things that really helped me with that when I kind of turned all of my focus to storytelling out of improv was 20 years of improv training of just teaching you how to engage with an audience to stay in the moment. Yeah. So now as I'm on stage with words that I know I want to hit, I'm not so married to them that I can just, I don't know, I can play and stay in the moment still. So it's yeah. Been, yeah, it's been absolutely integral to my performance to have that much improv behind me. And yet also fundamentally different because you're not staying in a scene or, 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 or maintaining a reality of a scene, but just talking directly to the people out there. Because the, the thing with improv and storytelling that I found, up is, found out is that the audiences really want you to do well. Stand up, yeah. there is that if factor of people come in there with, I want to be part of the show, but mm-hmm. improv audiences and storytelling audiences are told and trained from the beginning, you are engaged with this and watching it. So 
I look at it as I have their attention. It's my job to keep it and engage them further. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's your, it's your, uh, your, your show to lose. It's your show to lose. Yeah. So I want to I want to go back because um, I think it's interesting how people get started in improv to begin with. Um, being a Detroiter, my intro because the second city in Detroit was <clears throat> an older show. Like you know, obviously you had to be twenty one and over. So in mm-hmm. uh, so there wasn't a lot of um, when I was young there wasn't a lot of introduction to it except in college where we had to take improv for theater. So that was my introduction to improv. But you started in Chicago. You were an actor? I moved to Chicago from the University of Florida with the sole intent of putting every egg I have ever had in one basket that was Second City. That's amazing. Like how? Specifically Second City, not just improv, not just acting. Second City. Second City. Tell us why. My freshman year at University of Florida, I went to go see a Second City touring company perform at the Rights Union. And as I was sitting there watching these people perform, I leaned over to my then girlfriend and said, this is exactly what I want to do. And then a scant 10 years later, I did finally get hired there. And then that became the next 20 years of my life. Also, I don't think we're going to make it. Also, I just want to ask... um, (laughs) <laughs> did you have an I have all my students I set them all up with informational interviews with people that they aspire to have the same career as mm-hmm. and um, I I gotta tell you did you ever ask an improviser in that touring company like do you make enough money to sustain a lifestyle that affords you I mean life? they were all very, wearing very fancy suits I imagine <laughs> Oh my gosh, they were the fanciest. I couldn't believe these grown-ups in front of me. Uh, that never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Good mm-hmm. for you. Good. Good. Yeah, I'm and glad. I'd say that and that might be me romanticizing a former version of myself, but I remember just being so entranced by that. But then when I moved to Chicago, I started getting a job, and this may springboard us naturally into this. One of the things that I was told by a good friend of mine was, at the Second City, daytime funny can be just as valuable as shows you do outside of the theater. Uh So as a way to get noticed, a bunch of us got hired in the box office. So we were there all the time. So the producers would start to get to know us and find us funny, but it was a double-edged sword because you had to break out of that mold of being the box office person. Mm -hmm. So it was that thing of, you could be seen as very funny. You could also be seen as integral to a job that does not pay much money and we're happy you're here. So I was able to break that. But while I was there working the box office, I asked everyone who worked there what their ascension was to get to where they were. Amazing. And they uh, all said box office. Yeah. Every one of them. Yeah, uh, of course. <laughs> I remember one, uh, here's, here's a small name drop, but I was just find this one the most kind of, uh, this helped me the most, was that uh, Tina Fey, before she was Tina Fey, was on the touring company uh, at Second City and then okay. eventual main stage. When she got main stage, uh, she was the first woman to break the four men, two women cast. So it was three and three from that point right. forward. That point forward, she goes on to be on SNL and become the first female head writer. All this. That was, say, I'm sorry, that was her and Dratch in that cast, right? Correct. Right. Her, Dratch, uh, and Jenna Jolovitz. And John, yeah, and Jenna, yeah. Jolovich. 
so all this to say about her ascension, one time she comes back to Second City and she and I are standing in the green room just by ourselves. I'm just a box office dude who was now uh, about to be hired as an understudy. And I said, what was it nice. like to get main stage? Couldn't have given less of a shit about uh, SNL. Can I say shit? I just already yeah. said it twice. You can say yeah. as much shit as you want. Great. I'll probably bring it up naturally again. So yeah. we're backstage, we're in the green room talking. And I asked her, what was it like to get main stage? And she said, she took a second and she honestly responded with, when I got it, I was so excited. And then the next morning I woke up petrified with fear with the first thought of now what? Oh yeah. And to watch her ascension just in the world of comedy, to always remember that moment for me of just even her waking up petrified with fear of the words now what made me feel better every time I've experienced those two crucial words. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that you would feel it at that particular point. I think of all the stages of one's career, that's the point where I imagine I don't I wouldn't be thinking that, you know, maybe the day before, maybe a few weeks later, or even once the show opens, yeah. but like the day after you get the job, unless unless it was like a now what like uh doubting herself, like no, oh, now I have to live up to it. I, I, yeah, it's one of those things of it's all interpretation at this point for me, because once again, just memory wise, those are the salient details I remember. And I kind of put it into my own narrative. Mm -hmm. But I remember yeah. that just being because she was amazing well before she became the nation's Tina Fey. Yeah. And I remember mm -hmm. just being so fascinated by her and what she could do. But yeah, you got to Chicago, you got you, you. You, before you even rented an apartment, you just walked in the doors of Second City and said, I need to be here. More or yeah. less? More or less. And then I had, I went and uh, I moved up with a buddy of mine and he and I went and got out, went and did our auditions for the training center for the conservatory program. So we would skip the beginning levels because we did improv in college. So right. we didn't need to go through the beginning levels. Got mm -hmm. this. Right to the conservatory. I go up and I do my audition and I do something that I regret to this day. I am 51 years old. And I look back on something I did when I was 25 and it still makes me cringe. But while I was on stage, I was with two women and me and in the scene, they started talking and I couldn't get a word in edgewise and I was standing on the side. I had traveled thousands of miles to get to Chicago and I wanted to do this so badly and now I'm being boxed out in my audition. So what do I do? I take the hard, cool route of making them prostitutes who were not paying attention to me. And at that point I was stopped by the guy running the audition and said, Kevin, you just made them prostitutes. Can we start over with something else? And at that moment I had a, oh no, this isn't going well at the beginning. I got my rejection letter. <laughs> And then uh, from that point, I was not accepted into the conservatory and I was heartbroken. However, one of those things when you look back on yourself and you realize lessons and when you, your metal is tested. And this was yeah. one for me that I decided I'm just going to get back up and keep trying. And then the next term, I was accepted in the conservatory. The reason I bring this up is because another one of those lessons for me is that I was so devastated when it didn't work out that first time, but my friend did get in. Oh. And, and had I gotten in with him, I would have taken classes with him the entire way. But because I didn't, I got put on a whole new track where I was introduced to completely different teachers who were instrumental 
and getting me eventually hired for the theater. So I look back on that first rejection as, thank goodness I got rejected because otherwise I don't know what the path would have been and would I have even gotten into the theater the way I eventually did. Yeah, yeah. So that being said, what first, back up for one second, you didn't get in, did you ever think I'm gonna go back to Florida or were you committed to staying and finding a job until that next audition season? The latter. At no point in my life did I ever think, I'm going back to Florida. Because a lot never... of people do. They come out and they think, even here to L.A., they'll have like a month of thinking, you know, starry-eyed dreams. Even my um, undergrads who are out here for the um, for the semester, they're like, wow, the curtain is really pulled back. This is yeah. not the magical place. This is really fucking hard. And I'm like, well, yeah, people live here every day. There's normal jobs. There's normal people. It's not any different than anywhere else in in the States, really, except there is the opportunity to do the job you want to do here. But, like, how do you make the money? How do you find jobs that aren't um, what you want to do? What did you do? Well, if I may, and I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think I'm of the opinion that Chicago is one of the best cities in the world to struggle in. I I mean, I think that New York eats you alive. It's I think really cold. It is cold. It, it is, is cold. really I'm cold. From Detroit, and I think it's just I hate it. All right. Yeah. So temperature aside, yeah. I think that and and you know, Chicago is friendly to people who are trying to be on an I artistic see. track. Okay. I and do not disagree with that at all. And that's been the I, consensus on this show. Has it? Because yeah. it's also, there was a PBS special I saw about the artistic world of Chicago. And one of the things a couple of the people interviewed said is that this is the best place for a young artist to get good. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the same thing. There's not as much pressure as New York and L.A. kind of inevitably put on people. I, I never felt that much of a pressure there. Because once again, all my eggs were in the second city basket. But it was, it helped me get good at certain things. There's a, a Jim Belushi had a quote one time where he talked about the main stage of second city. And he said, you do eight shows a week and you cannot, and because of that, you cannot help but get good at it. Yeah. And that, that really stood out to me of just how many shows can I do? How much improv, how much, how ensconced can I be in this improv world? Mm-hmm. And I yeah, and that's just really if you're sense. that's just that's just if you're doing main stage at Second City. Not to mention yeah. the you know ten other theaters, or you know the five other improv theaters and the thirty other theater theaters. I mean, but let's take could, the, press yeah. the pause button on that because Done. the name of this Boop. show is "What Do I Do mm. to Support Myself mm-hmm. as an Artist?" Because those things, even in Chicago, are not paying a salaried position to support yourself. So you may get good, but what are you doing while you're getting good? Well, now that I'm done romanticizing that past, let me talk Uh about the shit part of it. You and Beaver. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it felt so nice just to go back and just drift. (laughs) And and I'm ripping the curtain open on both of you. You lie. This Vegas just suddenly got very bright. (laughs) Yes. I see the stains in the carpet. Oh, goodness. So I worked at different restaurants. This is my first foray into waiting tables. Oh, God. Is this before or after box office or simultaneous? This is well before it. 
uh, I'm so bad years. At I just took classes and then I just I worked I waited tables at a place called Leona's which is a, a mm -hmm. local chain in Chicago yeah and uh, TGI Fridays oh where, god I know where I used you're to living joke, my Midwest dreams right now oh, what's happening <laughs> Uh, TGI Fridays, where dignity is not on the menu. No. And uh, and then a place called Rock Bottom Brewery. Those are my three places. Okay. And they I were... am a terrible waiter. I've been the only jobs I've ever been fired from are hostessing and waiting tables. <laughs> so from one <laughs> establishment type. Uh huh. Uh, what were you not good at? What was well, the sticking point? I will tell you. I think I've said it. Maybe listeners will yell at me, but um, I <laughs> this hostessing job. They were like, "You can't take reservations after eight thirty, and that's all they said to me. So <laughs> people would call after eight thirty and say, "I'd like to make a reservation for tomorrow at seven. And I said, oh, "I'm no. sorry, it's after eight thirty. I can't." <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I will say and. I'm sorry this falls <laughs> immediately following your story, but I was quite good at it. And I prided oh. myself on how good I was at it. Oh, okay. All right. So it's proud of the flair. Proud of the flair. But here was the thing that I loved about it. And here's where uh, we can bleed the two, the romanticization of that time period along with making the paper of that time period. Yeah. Where one of the things, uh, a friend of mine is uh, a stand-up. His name is Matt Bronger. And one of the things he and I used to do at uh, Rock Bottom Brewery is because both of us were getting into comedy. Mm -hmm. And he and I made the observation one day that this is the only job that we have ever had that where you can walk up to a fellow employee, engage them in a very brief conversation and walk off with no explanation because they know that you have many different things that you're timing. So you could have little brief moments with people. So we started calling them hit and runs that it became the game of the day of how quickly can you go up with someone, engage with them, get a laugh, and then get out of there. Wow. So it just became this exercise in how quickly can you just, yeah, just be funny with them. And it got both of us good and sharp, and we would just play games all night. We would make up games that people would join in on that whenever you ran into someone, you would just continue that game and then go out through the night. Yeah, this sounds so, like my dating history before Bieber. <laughs> yeah so it's all just brief hits mm -hmm. yeah well it actually it sounds like an improv game i'm surprised you didn't introduce the hit the hit and run the hit and run yeah, yeah. it does you should start your own school and there uh -huh. this is like instead of you know what then, you know what hit and run it, you know what? It, it, it didn't work at the time now we're in the age of tiktok and this is exactly this is this the is moment exactly it. yeah yeah Wow, I'm walking out of here with a whole new direction in my vocation. Thank you so much. I yeah. would not have thought of this. <laughs> well, that's what Who we knew do. we were going to have a business it. plan for you. Some people yeah. call us muses. Um, <laughs> so you would do these hit and runs, <laughs> uh, and then you and then you get right back to the table and right back and, to the table. And... Yeah, so that was be the thing. It just helped. It helped train us just to get good and stay sharp and to look at it as how fast can you take on your improv training and just yes yeah. and someone quickly uh and then i would we'd make up games throughout the night as i said like we did one called uh norman rockwell's attic so you, you when you hear norman rockwell you immediately picture a certain type of painting yes so the game became what 
Norman Rockwell paintings did we never see that he hid in his attic. So every time we would run into each other, we would just quickly and as specifically as we can describe a picture. Uh, Like big old time gymnasium, one of those, those bleachers where you pull them out and they com- they come out that way, and it is a line of young boys with their pants down behind their ankle down at their ankles, and there is a doctor doing the hernia test okay. on all of them, and there's one kid at the end of the row looking out petrified with fear, and it's called making the team, so like that kind of thing <laughs> where it's just those. This is a great game. It's yeah, it's, so it became very fun, like those types of things helped me while I was not able to do the thing I really wanted to do full time, mm-hmm. it helped me get good at it. And when it eventually did become, well, you were, you were doing it. You just weren't doing it at the theater. Yes. For so, an audience. Yeah. And so yeah. you work at three restaurants. <clears throat> were you working at the restaurants? How did you end up moving from TGI Fridays or from Leona's to TGI's to rock bottom? Like, were, th- were these lateral moves or were you <laughs> moving up in the restaurant business? Because some people like really would stay where they're at in pursuit of like get- getting comfortable where they're at and their bosses know them. And when you say, I have an audition or I'm going to go do this thing, I need the night off. Like you've built a reputation and a community in that service industry. And then you, you, you just chucked it. You're like, Leona's later Fridays is calling my name. Like what happened? So Fridays was... A lateral move, but better in the sense that it was only a lunchtime place that opened at 1030 and closed at eight because it was in the merchandise mart. So a majority of the people coming to it worked solely in that building. So Mm -hmm. I was drawn to it because more times than not, you're just doing a lunch shift and then you're out by four o'clock so I could do shows at night and just have day shifts. Yeah. So it was a lateral move, but it was a better schedule. The thing about Fridays... And here's, and this, one of the questions you had posed to me on the questionnaire was the dark side of things. Mm -hmm. Here is one dark side, if you don't mind jumping ahead. I do. No, I don't. I mean, I want to hear it now. Okay. So at this particular TGR Fridays, I was in a situation I'd never been in before, which was this restaurant at four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon was going to close forever. And at that point, I ended up being the last waiter in the last section on the last shift on the last day of this restaurant. And while I'm there after years of taking people's grief, angry, hungry, hangry people who would say things to me that I would have to swallow and deal with later on this last day, I get triple sat in my section and no one else is there to help me. They're all gone. This restaurant gone. closes in 15 minutes. Was so there no a cook? one cares. There were cooks, but they were back there doing whatever they wanted to do. Manager was back there stealing things, I think. Who knows? <sighs> Either way, I'm on the floor by myself, <laughs> triple sat. I take the drink order of the first table. I move to the second, which has kids who are just throwing Cheerios every way they can. Mm, the mm. third uh, third table, also kids, Cheerios. It's just nightmare. So when I finally get back to the original table, the guy is so angry at me for not taking their order already. And they are in such a hurry that he says something to me that I have since blocked out. 
But all I know is that it made me so angry inside. And with all the frustration of the years built up, I said, fine, what do you want? He gave me the order and without breaking eye contact, I took his menu and the design of this Friday's was the same as most of them, where it's a dining room and then there's long corridors of tables. So it's just yeah. a long stretch of tables. So as I take his menu without breaking eye contact, I just throw his menu across the <laughs> restaurant and then I strut to the back. Oh and God. because, and because, and I felt so good and so empowered that I had stood up to this guy and he had borne the brunt of all these other people. But then because I am me, within four seconds, all of that elation went away and I was hit with guilt, remorse, and I knew I had to go back out there. So I went to a manager and said, there's gonna be a guy who probably tells you that I threw his menu across the restaurant. So at that point I had to go back out with the manager and apologize to the guy so my elation was short-lived mm. god it felt so good that still 25 years later i can remember that feeling of throwing it why did they even make you like one why was the guy still there two it's the last day you're closing in 15 minutes i'm surprised they just were like i would have been like meh, meh. okay all right now let's go to the theme of this podcast <laughs> i need it that's three tables and that was, I think it was a total of like 10 people eating. And at the time I needed what could have hopefully been 25 bucks from those yeah. three tables, but that wasn't the, so I had to get it. I had no other job lined up. So I had to get whatever remaining scraps of money I could, oh. hence the apology. Oh yeah. my God. Didn't, hence, didn't have the forethought to go back steal some stuff yourself no no did he tip you I, did he tip you the only thing i remember is that it was not if it was it was like the change on the bill i did not oh, get right, right. beyond that oh. let me ask you something about waiting tables and then working in a brewery did you it's I'm asking you specifically because you worked at fridays which i happen to know is like a popular midwest bar happy hour bar for yes. young people and yes. so and i know it started as um a, a singles bar like the man who started yeah. fridays like was started fridays for single people of a certain age to hook up and meet like, it was the first tinder it was the first yeah. tinder it was in person did you deal with a, did you get a lot of dates did you get a lot of numbers like what was happening no because this Friday's ended up being simply just a lunch establishment amongst two other lunch establishment in the largest square footage business center. Ah, I lost the merchandise mart has some sort of record that I completely blew as I was trying to describe it, but it is the largest square foot retail operation in the world. I think it's like just lower than the Pentagon in square footage, wow. but like that's, that's what we were is just this restaurant in there. So it wasn't singles. It was dudes in ties who that were sucks. It sucked. However, like you missed out it's on purely like, like sterile and utilitarian. Yeah. Yes. You missed out on However, like the, the, the perk of Fridays. But then I moved to rock bottom brewery Okay. Where they had a hiring policy that I don't know if this is coincidence or design but a majority of all the women who worked there were so attractive. 
And a lot of the people that came in there were so attractive. So it was just a, I got to have that. Did it work out in my favor? Not really, but it was nice to be around. (laughs) You take the perks that come. Yeah, I mean, it was just nice. It was nice aesthetics. So that was wonderful. I hope that wasn't in their hiring policy because that would be a problem. Yes. It's the unwritten policy. It's it's, it's, It's casting. It's casting. It's not hiring. It's casting. Uh, going back to Fridays and then also, and Leona's and Rock Bottom, but specifically Fridays, you said it was a daytime joint. You didn't work at night. You know, out here in LA, we've got, you know, actors working as waiters and we want those night jobs because you need the daytime open for auditioning. In Chicago, I guess there's not as much value on the daytime. I don't know if you were auditioning during the daytime or if it was just about doing shows at night. It was just about doing shows at night. One of the things that uh, I find, once again, we use this word, but in the romanticization of my past, all I wanted to do was Second City. I fell in love with what they did, the alumni list. And to be perfectly candid, there was... And I say this because I've done a lot of work on this since, but at the time I wanted so badly to just be associated with that because I wanted that to just be attached to me because it felt it validated me because I had that name always Mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. So that was the thing that being an actor in Chicago did not, I couldn't have cared less. I did my improv shows at second city. I did them at uh, IO, but it was then improv Olympic. And that brought me so much happiness that's all I saw. Working yeah. at that theater and having a long career there was the main thing I wanted. So you're at Rock Bottom Brewery, and is this when the box office, Second City Chicago box office job came into play? Like you left there to work at the box office in your so singular was, focus? So my singular focus became what you were talking about with all these different things. But the singular focus was Second City. However, I worked at Rock Bottom Brewery as that made the majority of my money. But then I also worked in the box office. I also took on an assistant directing job for one of the resident companies. Oh. So I was doing, I was working 80 hours a week, just trying as hard as I could to make sure I kept in at Second City as much as I could, but making enough money that I could sustain that. Yeah, yeah. Of it was exhausting, absolutely exhausting. And yeah. it's also, I don't think that I would have the energy now at this point in my life to do what I did at that point in my life. So the singular thing had such advantages to it because I could really focus on hitting this. I want to get a paycheck from here. Yeah. Was mm-hmm. the main focus. So, yeah. Yeah. And then let's get deep in your psyche with that. Let's go. We're here for it. All right. Okay. So (laughs) ask a specific question and then I'll, uh, I'll get into it. Cause right now I could go off on a monologue, which is my, what you're known for. Yeah. Yeah. This is why everyone's so invested in you. I want to know. All right. So I've got a specific question. Okay. uh, You, you, you didn't, you never, I mean, you know, when you sent your list of jobs, you said you were an improv coach. You never said you were an assistant director for Resco, which is mm. actually quite coveted, especially when you're you're coming up. Is it considered uh, a job where you're making money or is it considered shadowing or interning or how did they consider it there? Uh, interning. Interning, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. interning. Okay. Yeah. The the deal I struck with the the producers and the director, I said, here's what I want out of this. 
I want to be in the cast photo uh, when they do their cast photos. Smart. And I also want to do at least five improv sets once the improv sets get open again. And that was what I wanted. And they kind of laughed at that because I would have gotten both those things anyway without my hard edge demand. Amazing. Because uh, at that point, because here was the fringe benefit of doing the AD work was I was there all the time. And I was, I got very lucky and there were others like me, but I was one of the few that while I worked in the box office, before I was even hired as an actor there, I was getting the privilege of having the cast come look for me and ask me to do the improv sets after the resident shows. So because I was there all the time, I started, I got a fast track to things that had I stayed on the outside and just tried to work in, it would have taken me much longer to do. Yeah. I do you feel like it actually helped? Like, do you feel like that fast tracked you towards getting a show, getting a stage, getting? So I never did a stage. Touring Not company a stage, was. I mean, yeah. 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 But yes, it just. There was a night that I did an improv set with the main stage cast that was one of those pivotal moments where one of the hardest things to do is to be introduced on the stage after. 340 people have now fallen in love with six people over the last two hours and two acts of comedy. Now mm -hmm. they're coming back for a free improv set. And now this dude is coming up here with us. So you have a bit of a hurdle to get over when you first start it. And I started getting good at just taking the stage and just being in it. However, at the beginning of it, there was one night where I was nervous and I got uh, uh, pimped into being an evangelical preacher and I started doing a very stereotypical evangelical preacher and it wasn't getting laughs and you know those moments where you finish a sentence and you think oh that's going to be a beat and that's going to get a laugh I did that and nothing silence in the entire yeah. room except for one drunk woman in the front row who said matter of factly and loud enough for the entire room to hear that's not funny Mm. I respond, I see one of my parishioners has an opinion. My heart is beating so fast because now I'm called out. Now I don't know what to do. So then everybody kind of joins and gets my back. Uh, and then the scene is over. And now I'm in the back and my heart is beating. And all of the anxiety that I was eventually diagnosed with later in life, but did not know at the time, is completely taking me over. And I don't want to go back out on stage again because my, th my thought is that the general consensus of everyone in that audience thinks he's not funny yeah so i bravely think to myself this is what you want to do for a living you yeah. have an opportunity right here if you don't go out then you don't deserve to be up here so i forced myself to go back out and i started a scene stage right uh, house left i start the scene my partner says a line i say a line she says a line and then on the fourth line i say something that just fits so beautifully and it's one of those laughs that i love so much which is the rolling laugh when a few people get it till eventually just it takes over the whole room mm -hmm. and at that point the whole room is laughing at what i just said and then in a moment of just moxie i clapped my hands and yelled freeze ran across the stage to the woman in the front row leaned down and real cutely said how was that was that okay <laughs> and then you'll know, unfreeze and ran back and continue to see. <laughs> the place erupted in applause for this move. And then the next day, there were two main stage casts who went 
to the producers to say, we want you to know this happened last night and how he handled this. And they kind of pushed for me to get hired. So that was yeah. a long story just to say that was those types of things, just being there all the time and just, I don't know. If it's not funny, here's the thing as an audience member for me, because I don't know why I think I've always been this way, but when I'm in an audience of a comedy show, improv, stand up, um, whatever, if something's supposed to be funny and it's not, I still laugh. Like that yeah. is like a trigger for me. Like I'm like, Ooh, cringy. <laughs> like I can't, I can't control it. Um, and then people will be like, it's not funny. And I'm like, well, I'm funny and I'm laughing. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable because to me, you don't need to say out loud that's not funny because we've already been given empirical proof it's not funny because right. of the silence that has followed right. the line that's been said. Yeah. So, but she was an asshole. It's art. Yes. Give people a break. But you know what's also interesting to me is that um, Chicago has these improv shows. Obviously, we've had a lot of Chicago actors on who have been through through Second City and other programs. And it's so interesting because here in LA, we were saturated, not anymore, but we were saturated with improv in Los Angeles for a while, for a good decade. Mm -hmm. And it yeah. was like improv show, improv show, improv show, improv show. And I'm gonna say something, most of it wasn't good. It oh, was sure. not good. And it was just like, you know, improv sort of took on a different kind of language to me or like, I, I, I don't know. It, it was interesting for a while because I was like, is this improv or is this just people trying to get their feet wet in something or trying to learn something for commercial auditions or like, Boom. what is happening here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. When it's Every... well, it's a magic trick. It's when it's yeah. not, it's tough. Sorry. Yeah. Jason. No, no, it's just a, a, every commercial agent in Los Angeles told the, their entire client roster to go take improv. That's true go story. Go become yeah. an improviser. Yeah, yeah true story. Because that, because um, I taught at the Second City Hollywood out here mm -hmm. for from two thousand, I don't know, like eight years. And wait, are we making another magical transition? Yes. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, ooh! You ruined it. Ooh, ooh, ooh! ooh it was ooh. magical. So from there, I was told by so many people in my classes, I'm here solely because my agent told me I needed to yeah. do improv classes. Yeah. And yeah, I was fine with it because it was just money. No, you're, you're well, working. And also, I liked it. Cast, yeah, casting director said that they wouldn't look at people if they didn't have one of the institutions out here on their resume. So he was like, well, you've got to go show that you're taking classes at UCB, Groundlings, Second City, whatever. Um, yeah. And I want to say, yeah, I want to I say as one of those L.A. actors whose agent did tell them to ta go take improv classes. Um, and I didn't when when my reps did, but when my acting coach said you need to study improv, I listened. And so, but I want to say that despite how I came to it, I fell in love with it, and yeah, it it took on it like for ten years. It became like all of a sudden the new thing that I like. I, I was less interested in acting. All I wanted to do was improv. And suddenly getting yeah. a tour was like the pinnacle of my career and I didn't give a shit about anything else. True story. It, yeah. It's it's uh, it's a heavy chain. It's an <laughs> it is. True it story. It really is. Uh, which has kind of found me in, I love improv. And like I said at the very beginning, it has helped me 
not only my now chosen vocation of storytelling, but also just in life, it makes it so much easier just to yes and something, just to agree to reality and add one thing yeah. to it. Mm -hmm. Ugh, it makes situations so much easier. But yeah, that was going to be a magical transition, but then I lost it halfway through. Well, and I'm I interested to know when when it happened for you, when you got a tour, how long had you been in Chicago at that point? Working in industry, in... Um... Box five office years. and okay, five years. So and from you, arrival to actually getting hired to do my first tour, I think it's five years. Great. And when you got your tour, what happened? Did you have to leave your um, serving jobs or were they? Yes. Okay, you did. Okay. So then what did you do? Did you just do box office and when you were back from tour? Because, or did tour kind of. That became the thing. And then I was okay. now eligible to teach in the training oh, great. center. Okay. So that, so that at that point forward, from 2000 forward, I have had a nice luxury of some jobs have been better than others, but it's always been within this field. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I haven't had to go. Yeah. Did but, did they send you out to LA then from Chicago to open up the no, LA? No, 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 no. Okay. How did no, you? No, no. How did you float out here? Well, life or why? turns for me. Or why? Ah. Uh. So, uh, Second City did cruise ships for a while. Yeah, that's what mm -hmm. Beaver did. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I did, I did the first cruise ship, then I did the second yes. cruise ship, mm -hmm. and then years passed, and then I did another one. But essentially, what happened was I was going to do cruise ships until I couldn't do them anymore, and I was going to make as much money as I possibly could for me choosing what the next thing I did was. However, life got in the way. My mom got sick. I went home to live with her for a while. And then after that was complete, I had the, what do I do next? Uh, I pulled a Goodwill hunting and had to go see about a girl. So I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan while she got her PhD. But then that ended up fizzling. So then I moved, went to another ship. And then that ship from there, I had no other place to go because all of my dearest deepest friendships are out here so then i moved to los angeles from that so it was life had some circuitous twists yeah. and turns for me but that's also like why i always i did groundlings and ucb and graduated the writing program at second city but that's why sketch was oh i never could do improv i did improv but it's not something i enjoy because my anxiety is triggered by not trusting people and I don't trust okay. people I'm on stage with. So I love storytelling because it's a solo journey with your audience. I'm not relying on anybody to support my work or or that they're going to let me go. I don't trust people. And that's why I love stand-up is because it's me and my audience. And we're going on the story journey together as well. Yeah. But in, And I write sketch because I feel like with the rehearsal of sketch, you can, again, it's relying on people because it's written out. And I love writing. So... There's improv to me is like anxiety inducing. So with somebody with anxiety, I don't even understand how you could process being on stage like that. The thing that people would always ask me whenever I teach improv was, how do you teach improv? How do you coach improv? Like, why do you rehearse for improv? And my response was always, well, it's the same thing as practicing for football. You're practicing. So you have the skills available for when you actually have a game day. Yeah. And that for me is that same thing that I now have the skill set that I feel comfortable going up 
that I trust myself that I'm going to support the other person so much. So I guess it's a long way of saying I've kind of overcome that as a fear. Yeah. While other things still have mm-hmm. so much control over me fear wise. That yeah. is not one of them. You did teach in Chicago, but then you followed your friends after a circuitous life journey out mm-hmm. to Los Angeles and uh, and started teaching at uh, Second City Hollywood. Um, was that right away or did you have like stopgap employment when you got here? Yeah. That leads us just fluidly to Hollywood Arts. Ah, Hollywood oh, Arts. Okay. That's where our paths first crossed. That's where our paths first met. So I, when I first got here, I, I had made a bit of money, so I wasn't uh, desperately needing something right when I got here. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to take away classes from people that did. Uh, and then Rachel, uh, Rachel, who ran Hollywood Arts, said, do you want to come do this where I would work reception at this place? This is Rachel Romansky, who is now Rachel Cayetti. That is correct. Uh, and she said, you can write here. You can just basically sit at this desk because they basically just wanted a male presence in the room. Mm. It was her and another woman and another guy who worked upstairs, but she just wanted just a dude there. Yeah. Not that I'm formidable by any means, but just that added presence. And I just sat at a desk all day and I handed out headphones and I interacted with everyone, but I mostly just wrote and, and for wrote those a who, ton of stories. For those who don't know, Hollywood Arts, uh, I don't know if it's still around. It, it, it was an amazing yeah. organization uh, providing uh, artistic education and outlets for homeless youth mm-hmm. in, in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, now, were you teaching any of the classes there, or were you, or, or were you just? Uh... I did. I did some, but it was basically just Rachel, who I've known for twenty five plus years. Just it's her doing me a. It's each of us doing each other a solid, mm-hmm. because she, it did make me write, because I was sitting at a desk all day. I barely had anything to do, so it was the the parameters I need personally for me to be productive, which is I have no other choice but to be productive. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. that, so you had that and then eventually a job opened at Second City Hollywood for you to teach? Uh, I just, I, the, one of my, I hate saying one of my best friends, so I've changed it to one of my top tier friends uh, was running like the that. training center mm-hmm. and he, He just kept saying, anytime you want to, just tell me. And then I decided I really wanted to because after about a year and a half at Hollywood Arts, I had kind of hit my threshold Mm -hmm. and I wanted to get back into teaching again. Um, But when I met you, I didn't even know you were from improv. I didn't like that was our that was our first introduction. And so I was actually like surprised later to see you at Second City. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So you you transition and you're coaching at Second City, and you do that here in L.A. for a couple of years. At that point, did you ever think, I'm going to start auditioning for commercials or for acting gigs or for sitcom? Or are you still on this single track of performing improv? Because you did have a show, uh, Funny Because It's True. Was mm-hmm. it Funny Because It's True? Yes. Um, a yeah. storytelling show at Second City. Um, and then it's stopped and you went away where did you go what's happening kevin let's see Hmm. so i started to really focus in on storytelling and i ended up 
teaching at Second City until the summer of 2020. I think it was the last class oh, I taught COVID. for Second City. Yeah. And I decided I was just kind of done because I needed to break, quite candidly, I needed to break my relationship with Second City because it was holding me back mm -hmm. in the sense that, as I said at the beginning, I wanted that name associated with me when I was much younger. But then as I got older and I started to go through, I don't know, you started to learn more about yourself that I was letting that be a, a crutch of mm -hmm. sorts. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go out and try other and brand new things. So from there, and this goes into a whole other world. During 2020, I had a huge moment of, I had a breakdown. And in that breakdown, I was living with a neuroscientist girlfriend at the time. And I admitted that I needed help. And she said she would help me. And from that point forward, she put me on a path to do things that I would have never done before or even known how to do to actually deal with things from my past that I had never actually dealt with. So from there, I got a, there's a big old tangent. I got a spec brain scan, which is a single photon emission computed tomography brain scan, which showed me the before mentioned anxiety, depression, ADHD, and PTSD on my brain. And then from there, I went through many different groups over the next 11 months to focus in on what are the root causes of those things to deal with them. And I emerged a much different person. The way I describe it is, it's like when you update the operating system on your phone and you open it up for the first time, you're like, what is this? This looks so different. I don't know how to work this. And then you do it for like a little bit and you realize, oh God, this is so much better. And I can't believe I lived with the old way for so long. Uh -huh. So that's where I'm at right now. So as I look at past behaviors and past things, as I enter this whole new phase that I call current Kevin, it's interesting to look back on past behavior of things that I just let dictate my life, including, and this is the, all of that to answer your question. Do you start auditioning, going out for commercials? No, because I had a horrible self-esteem issue that was rooted so deeply into deep past events that I never wanted to do that or put myself in that position. Mm -hmm. I liked being on stage because stage was temporary and it was over. But film, I never liked watching myself. I couldn't. There was a, an aversion to it. And it was the whole Harpo Marx thing of I don't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member. So that was also a thing that was really just debilitating to me. Got it. So long answer, finished. But you found but, yeah. a, a club that would have you as a member and you're thriving in it now, which is yeah. this, the world of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. so what are you doing with the storytelling now? Is that your full-time job? Uh, yes, I teach it. Uh, I have clients that I will teach and I will do classes for that. Like that's the main thing I do. Mm -hmm. uh, I just had, I was living in Phoenix for a bit and that was where I went on all that big part of that journey. Mm -hmm. And I, they opened Did up the moth again and I started doing moths there. And then I, I won, a, a lot of them yeah. and now I'm starting to reap the benefits of that where now it's the first round is the story slam the next round is the grand slam and last week a week ago yesterday I had a grand slam in Phoenix that was an incredible experience yeah yeah that's all is it is it like That's secret the shortest or is it... story Ke Kevin's gonna tell the shortest story yeah. did you get the married while story. you were there what happened? Uh, 
It was an amazing experience for a number of reasons. One of them being me testing myself as an artist, let's say. Okay. 10 o'clock the night before the show, I read it to uh, another one of my top tier friends. I told her the story and from the look on her face, and she's a very big fan of what I do. And from the look on her face, I could tell that she wasn't enjoying it that much. At the end, I said, what do you think? And she goes, that's good. And I said, but your face told a different story. And she responded with, well, it doesn't sound like you. It sounds like you're trying to be someone else. And I did not disagree with her. So that night I made the decision that I can't do this version. So I woke up at six the next morning and for four hours, I redid the draft completely at yeah. 10 o'clock, told it to her again. She was absolutely thrilled and said, that sounds exactly like you. And then from that point forward, I spent the day memorizing it. And then that night in front of 700 people, I hit everything word perfect, exactly the way I wanted to. And I think in all honesty, it might be my best comedic moth performance I have done yet. And I can't wait to put that video out. Awesome. Um, you had mentioned the, uh, the overhugger story before that to me is one of my finest stories that I've done, I think. And I think this one either rivals it or surpasses it. So for me to do that and to change it on the day of, and then pull that off, that is one of the reasons I say it was an amazing experience because something that shouldn't have worked, worked. You, you left Phoenix though. You came back to LA. Um, what are your plans here now and your goals? Are you going to get back into any improv or teaching or are you planning to, I mean, you're still storytelling, but what is that adjacent to? Are you going to, um, uh, full-time teach, uh, creative writing and storytelling? Are you, um, looking to finally start auditioning now that you have had your brain scanned? <laughs> uh, there are many things I am in definitely a transition period of my life and I find it absolutely fascinating because yeah I'm emerging with a different outlook on things and myself storytelling is the main thing I love doing I just come alive when I do it uh, I've been doing I've been taking over and subbing a drop-in that Jamie Moyer teaches yeah. and yeah, I found Vidal, yeah. that mm -hmm. yeah and that to me has been just a resurgence of I don't want to teach improv anymore, but I like having that one two hour block because to me it's very fun. And there's, I do have some, some things that I can pass on to people that are very helpful in that two hours, but I don't want to make that a full-time thing again, because that is definitely part of my youth. Mm -hmm. But story to me is the main thing. Uh, I'm currently working on the story of that 11 month mental health journey that I just told you about. It's called Days Without Incident. I've now performed it. I've had five public showings. Each one has been a different version as I try to find the exact way to tell this story. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, Jamie, you know this. One of the main things with storytelling is the fact that it's not just about the events that happened. Because who cares? Uh, yeah. It's how you were affected or changed by those things. Mm -hmm. So there is something that happened during this myself and an uncle of mine each fulfilled promises to my dead mother 15 years after her death and that's what the story is is the fulfillment of two promises it just happens to be me going through a very distinct mental health journey 
It's called Days Without Incident. And if you follow me on Facebook, you'll hear all about it ad nauseum. <laughs> I That's know. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love that. And your journey is inspiring because, yeah. one, you know, having a dream in at, at any age and then it sort of um, growing to something else or moving away from it. I like that you described that Second City and the improv was your youth dream and you did that. And now you have a new dream and you're pursuing that um, relentlessly. And I think that's amazing. I think that it gives so much to the idea that you don't have to always be defined as one thing. Remember when our fair, our fathers and our mothers like worked one job and retired from it? Yes, that seems so years? foreign. It's yeah. such mm-hmm. a foreign concept. Um, and also like depressing. Like no wonder they're like so stodgy and angry all the time but well that's well they drink more they drink more um so i think it's so inspiring and enlightening and i think that um you're so talented and we look forward to just watching this new journey of yours like this is really super exciting i'm so excited okay good me too she sewed on monday made love on tuesday on wednesday she was This ain't no same as it.